1: Hello and welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is
0: Noel. They call me Ben, you are you, and that makes this Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Uh, this, this is something that's been a long time in coming uh, for the three of us and for everyone else. It's also been a long time in Elberton. Uh, that's a joke about coming the county uh, uh, another county in Georgia
2: where i grew up it's a it's yeah. a city
0: it's a city excuse yeah. me elberton and it's is weird because it
2: has the area code 706 mm-hmm.
0: so does athens
2: So does Augusta, where I grew Mm -hmm. up. It seems like a whole wide swath of Georgia has 706. I've never understood why.
0: Yeah. You know, there's there's an interesting thing we could explore with the, uh, you know, there are conspiracy theories about area codes, uh, which will be something for a completely different podcast. Not
2: today, my friend.
0: Not today, my friend. Today we are casting our memory back to 1980, almost 40 years gone now, in a small town called Elberton, Georgia, the self-proclaimed granite capital of the world. And Noel, you have uh, you have perhaps uh, some of the well, you definitely have the most, I would say, personal experience with today's topic. Could you could you lead us in? You want me to give you the setup? Can you give us the setup? Yes, please.
2: Sure. I'm going to do it in my setup voice. <clears throat> in June of 1979, a well-dressed, well-spoken stranger walked into the office of the Elberton Granite Finishing Company. He used the name R.C. Christian or Robert Christian when introducing himself to the owner, Joe Findley, who was finishing his payroll. He said that he represented a small group of proud Americans who wanted to erect a monument in granite that would help shape the future of mankind.
0: That's right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, and those who are aliens or ghosts or future AI listening to this show. Today, at this moment in time and space, we are exploring the strange and fascinating story behind what is often called America's Stonehenge, but has another uh, more common name. The
1: Georgia Guidestones. Dun, dun, dun. Man, you read my mind
2: with that sound effect. Mm-hmm. Is that okay? That's I perfect. know we could do it in
0: post. What? No, no, no. It's better from you. Yeah. All right. It's more gravity. Yeah, more, more gravitas. Excellent. Yeah. So we went to the Guidestones for a an adventure that we probably won't ever fully explain on air, um, but... Circumstances led to the three of us being there in Elberton, Georgia, the seat of Elbert County. And this is a very, 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 very small town. Very small. Uh, population somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 people, about 90 miles east of Atlanta, 45 miles from Athens. Uh, but the stones themselves are about nine miles north of downtown Elberton. And you can see it from Georgia Highway 77, and you can reach it by turning, uh, turning on Guidestones Road. Uh, but, and it's incredibly accessible, you know. Yeah, it's just sitting there. And there are horses near it. Mm-hmm. it
2: it's, it's actually weird. situated on a farm, a piece of farmland that was gifted to— the city of Elberton mm-hmm. by the Mullinex family, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. We should should we go into why I know this stuff?
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, we should we should go ahead. Yeah, we should at least talk about it now. Let's let the badger out of the bag and get into it earlier. Because what what were we referring to when we said that you have some personal experience here?
2: Uh, when I was in college, I did my senior thesis film on the Georgia Guidestones. Uh, much like all of you listeners, it just it kind of found its way to me um, through a, a girl that I was dating at the time, and uh, I just was fascinated by it because there's a lot to be fascinated by it's a pretty pretty awesome mystery, and I decided I was going to make a little documentary about it, and it ended up being I think a little more than that um, in terms of you know what I uncovered and who I kind of befriended along the way. We can mm-hmm. get into that a little further into the episode here,
0: yes, because you have uh, you have unique, one of a kind, uh, not just experiences, not just, uh, pieces of footage, but also documents, uh, and, and connections with it. And we're going to be coming back to repeatedly over this because ladies and gentlemen, you are going to hear in this podcast or see in this video, uh, things that you have probably never heard nor seen regarding this topic, even if you have researched it extensively yourself. Um, Let's look at the history of Elbert County. Uh, what what do we know about this?
1: We know that it's named after a revolutionary and former governor of Georgia, Mr. Samuel Elbert, who was born in Savannah in 1740. Wow. Yeah. 1740. Uh, that's, that's Old South.
0: Yes, with a capital O and a capital S.
1: Definitely. So early on in this gentleman's career, he established this record uh, for – Peaceable interactions with the native populations in the area, uh, particularly the Creek Indians that, that were prevalent there. Mm-hmm. So this guy is allegedly a Freemason and his name supposedly appears on the, ni- on the 1779 Masonic membership rolls of Solomon's Lodge, number one in Savannah. Ooh, yeah, keep that's this pretty cool. Mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, you know, Savannah is one of the older cities in Georgia mm-hmm. and for it to be there, that's pretty significant.
0: And he made waves during his time in office. He ignored some existing legislation that sought to mix the powers of church and state in Georgia. Uh, at the time, the way that uh, the, the powers that a governor would have uh, over his state or her state were, uh, were a little bit different than they are in the modern age today. Or what we consider the modern age. Because who knows when you're watching this. And like many people, he passed away. In November of 1788. Like all people,
1: eventually.
2: But Elberton remains as the most notable location surrounding the Georgia Guidestones, all of its lore, all of its history, Mm -hmm. all rooted there in the town of Elberton. What also is still in the town of Elberton is a whole hell of a lot of granite which is the main industry of that city. When we went and visited, mm-hmm. every business from McDonald's to a, you know, funeral home has a granite sign you know on the outside it basically looks like a tombstone or they call them monuments
0: which people, is interesting people at their houses at their houses yeah. mailboxes yeah. you know it's just yeah. the, the
2: place is just lousy with the stuff
1: yeah and granite processing granite processing everywhere.
2: facilities everywhere I was able to visit one for the film actually and see the way they do it and it's a very there are some machines involved but a lot of it is still a very hands on hammer and chisel kind of activity mm-hmm. where they you know literally draw lines around the edges and hit it With a hammer and chisel and break them off, break off the edges to make those kind of rough, you know, monument uh, slabs that you see in tombstones, Mm -hmm. granite countertops. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of different processes for doing it. But the place I went, there were just lines of workers, you know, working on this stuff with their hands. The place was just full of dust, granite dust in the air, big, huge saw blades with uh, water spraying Mm -hmm. into them to cool it down and make these really precise cuts. Really interesting stuff. And it's a very close-knit community where pretty much the only reason you live there is if you work for that industry in some form or fashion.
0: Yeah, which makes absolute sense because, Noel, you're not exaggerating in any way. This was and is a granite town. And also they're famous for the type of granite. that I think it's called Blue Pyramid Granite, which is of a higher – uh, grade than some of the other stuff out there on the market, and that is one of the reasons people uh, conjecture. That's part of the reason that RC uh, went down. I'm going to assume that I'm very familiar with him, or you are more than most. Uh, so you can probably call him RC. That's why he and his uh, associates, his cohort, selected this area specifically. So they built this monument. We call the Georgia Guide Stones. Uh, it's built to convey astrological information, contains these multilingual directives for a new world paradigm. Or almost it seems like a restart. Like
1: this should be the base level if everything gets destroyed. This mm-hmm. is where we
0: should go. And we'll run through some statistics that are pretty easily available online here. Just the basics. Overall, 19 feet, 3 inches tall, uh, weighs... Almost 240,000 pounds, Um, the four major stones are 16 feet, four inches, and uh, they have support stones and they have a capstone, right? And the languages, all of these directives are listed in English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. And at the top uh, on that capstone, they have four older languages. And in each of those languages
1: is written the same ten commandments, and they are as follows.
2: Presented without comment. Number one, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Number two,
1: guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity.
0: The third one is uh, unite humanity with a living new language. Four Rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things
2: with tempered reason. Next, protect people and nations with fair
0: laws and just courts. Six, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court.
2: Seven, avoid petty laws and useless officials.
0: Balance personal rights with social duties. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite.
2: And last but not least, number 10, be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature.
0: This has been the subject of so much controversy, but everything you've heard at this point have been facts. And, and Noel, I wanted to ask you, did you, in in the course of talking about the construction, um, what did you learn about how this came from a stranger walking into – a granite company and a bank to actually becoming a thing.
2: So, in trying to find folks to interview for this film, I kept seeing the name Wyatt Martin pop up. He was the banker um, at a place at the time was called the Granite City Bank, and I believe it eventually became a regions bank. Mm -hmm. Um, And he uh, was the one who received this Mr. Christian when he came in, a gentleman just looking to discuss financing a project or having someone act as sort of an intermediary. Um, He wanted to remain anonymous, so he needed someone that was rooted in that community that could sort of help move the funds around, Mm -hmm. hire the right people. And he wasn't asking for someone's advice. He already had his mind set that this is where he wanted to build this thing. He already had the plans drawn up. He had the thing designed, you know. And it was a lot of money for the community and a lot of work for, you know, people that – the granite workers. And, so, and it would have been an interesting – if you think about it at the time, not knowing too much about it, I could see this as being an interesting tourist attraction. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of having sort of a mystery around it. It got people in the community kind of – Buzzing about what this was all about, who this mysterious stranger was, and all that. And I found Mr. Martin. Um, He had moved from Elberton, but I, I was able to look him up just Googling his name. And I called him, and he was very gracious and hospitable and went over to his house several times and hung out and just chatted. And, you know, he had some really interesting things to say about the process without revealing the identity of this man he was true to his word the first thing the man said was i want to use you as my intermediary but you have to promise me that you will never tell anyone who i really was no matter what swore him to secrecy more or less and you know this is a man of his word a southern gentleman shall we say a Mm. businessman you know (laughs) john businessman and um he did that thing. You know, he definitely kept to his word. So, once it was clear that the funds were available and this guy wasn't completely full of crap mm-hmm. and that he was serious about doing this project, um, he sent him over to see a man named Joe Finley at the Elbert and Granite Finishing Company, or I believe it was maybe the Elbert Granite Finishing Company. And um, he said that they could get it done, and he had you know folks that could do the work that were craftsmen. Mm-hmm. They ended up having to bring in some outside help to do some translations for these directives that we talked about. They mm-hmm. hired some people at the University of Georgia to do some of the different translations, which we'll get into in a bit. But uh, the stones were actually completed um, in March of 1980, and they even had an unveiling ceremony where all of local politicians were there, mm-hmm. local business people. Like I said, it was for many, looked at as a potential for a source of great pride for the community. Like, you know, here is the kind of work we can do. It was a much bigger project than just your typical countertop or, a you know, a gravestone, a grave marker. It was a big deal and it was right there out in the open in this field for all to see. So it was, you know, it was a big point of pride for the community. Um, The unveiling ceremony was on March the 22nd of nineteen eighty. And uh, there was covered by the media in the locally and regionally. And so, you know, um, going, it took about a year mm-hmm. to get the whole process done. And um, there you have it.
0: There we have the genesis, the origin point, the beginning, but
2: – Not nearly the end.
0: Not nearly the end. And we'll get to some of the stranger things about the Georgia Guidestones after a word from our sponsor here's where it gets crazy
1: remember that rc christian guy Mm -hmm. we still don't in 2016 know who that guy is we don't know the group that he represented if he Mm -hmm. represented a group we don't know much about it maybe a little bit
0: well we know speculations but we there's much more that we don't know. Uh, We have theories about his identity. We have theories about his affiliations. Um, One of the interesting things that you'll find, one of the more conspiratorial perhaps, is uh, that there are people who believe R.C. Christian could have been one of two people or maybe even more than one. And for the record, I find that very difficult to believe because it sounds like when... Christian was interacting with his intermediary. It was always the same person. They saw each other's faces. They recognized each other. But my, my favorite guess here is uh, some people believe that R.C. Christian was actually a guy named Robert Carter Cook. So uh, Robert Carter Cook was a guy who headed eugenics organizations uh, like the Planned Parenthood League, American Eugenics Society, the Association for Research in Human Heredity, and many other groups too too numerous to recall. He's very into eugenics, right? Uh, He was a big fan of Thomas Paine, also a Freemason and uh, author of The Age of Reason or next candidate, Ted Turner.
1: Definitely. Yep, it's Ted Turner.
0: You're sold, Matt? Yep, Matt sold. Sold. <laughs> Wrote in
1: on a buffalo, and he was like, this is how we're doing this. These are yeah. my stones.
0: We're making them. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, off that uh, TBS money. Let's see. I just
2: don't feel like Turner is the kind of guy that keeps much of anything a secret. You know, he yeah. seems like a pretty ostentatious fellow. Wants to wants to leave his mark and let people know that it was his.
1: Well, this was his one secret, Noel. Come oh, on. Kind of like everybody gets one yeah. yeah, it was
2: probably Jane's idea. She seems a little more subtle. Yeah. No, let's go. Let's go back to that. Is a, a clearly bull yeah. uh, bull well, manure. Uh, well, I don't. Uh,
0: the problem is like the Robert Carter Cook being a eugenicist. While that's evidence of a supporter of eugenics, it's not. It's the. It's not a smoking gun.
2: And let's let's not forget too that the initials R C Christian can't help but think about. The Rosicrucian Order, mm-hmm. the Order of the Rose Cross, um, also having some Enlightenment philosophies, and um, you know a, a similar kind of um, ideology to something like a Freemason, in that they. Combined aspects of religion and numerology, symbology, uh, in the similar way to the Freemasons.
0: Right, yeah, Rosicrucians would combine Hermeticism, some uh, Jewish mysticism, and Christian Gnosticism, and and things of that nature to communicate this secret wisdom, which is passed down through the ages. Um, And this sort of philosophy goes back to what are known as uh, mystery religions. Interesting side note. All right, um, you may hear at times people talk about a revealed religion. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us to think that means there are all sorts of secret religions. That may be true, but the actual definition of a revealed religion is simply one that has a book, you know, a Quran, a, a Bible, uh, a Torah, or something like that. So, Rosicrucian teachings then would be non revealed religions. Because they, there's not like the one official book that everybody knows about that you can, you know, buy at Barnes and Noble. You can buy a lot of books about it, a lot of books that purport to be uh, sending the message, but there's not a single canonical thing at this point. Which goes to my next question. What are you guys doing next week? Do you want to write one? Yeah. Um, well, I'm down for whatever, man. All right. While we're getting together our synopsis for that book uh, – I think it's it's important for us to point out that when people are guessing about what this organization could be or what this group of people could be, all they have to go on is that the what they said in the stones, mm-hmm. and then that they describe themselves as a small group of Americans who seek the age of reason, patriotic Americans, even patriotic yeah. Americans, absolutely, and this has led various various speculators to guess that these are Rosicrucians, like we're saying, uh, freemasons, of course, the uh, uh, new world order of globalists, yeah, yep. which it does sound similar with the world court stuff, or occultist, however we have on this show, thanks to you, Noel, uh, we have proof that at least the person responsible for constructing the Guidestones took great exception to this because we actually have stuff that you found in your investigations from the man himself.
2: That's true, Ben, but before I reveal this material, I do want to say that it should be noted that there was a sense at the time and now among the people that live in the area that this is some sort of shadowy occult monument some sort of let's say satanic uh, site for ritual mm-hmm. you know i actually interviewed a pastor uh, from a church nearby who claims to have driven by at night and seen robed figures sacrificing animals and throwing down rose petals and all of this. I also spoke at length to a very lovely woman named Elle um, who is a pagan and um, knows folks who have gone there to do solstice ceremonies Mm -hmm. because it's on a high place. It does have that kind of druidic – you know, majesty to it. I could definitely see how that would be an appealing sight.
0: And it's oriented astronomically. It is oriented, to, uh, ast- yes, to show certain certain features of the heavens. Right.
2: It tracks the movement of the North Star. Mm-hmm. There's a, a hole in it called the gnomon hole mm-hmm. that allows you to it, it aligns with the
0: North Star. Right, yeah.
2: And so, yeah, again, a lot of the stuff that we could um, kind of lump in with some of these. Astrological, um, obsessed, shall we say, organizations, orders, religions. Sure, you know, it's a lot of that is there if you want it.
0: And but, people still, local, uh, local populations still occasionally deface the uh monument by throwing paint on it and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah, right?
2: there was actually spoke with a local historian who had done some work. Around the history of Elberton Mm -hmm. and and written several books about uh, the um, history of that part of the state and uh, talked about how someone at one point had actually defaced it with a jackhammer yeah. or it looked like they had driven a car into it or tried to literally pull it out of the ground with some sort of tow line you we, know we
1: saw evidence of that you guys remember seeing the like chips at the bottom mm-hmm. or it had been defaced you can you know they,
2: they were able to buff a lot of that off I mean again it's a town full of Granite workers, right? right yeah. skilled granite workers. It's the best place for that to happen. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, so there, you know. Even to this day, people there are there is a certain subset of people that look at as a, look at a mystery as being a sign of ill will or a sign of some sort of force that mm-hmm. is negative in some way, mm-hmm. a threat in a, a way, threat exactly. They're threatened by it. Um, even in 1980, right when the stones were erected. Mr. Christian wasn't having any of that, and he sent this letter to Wyatt Martin. um, It's dated 6 August 1980. Dear Mr. Martin, thank you for sending me the newspaper stories. These were clippings about some of the controversy. This is the type of controversy which we had hoped to avoid, which I suppose is unavoidable. I'm enclosing a statement which you might forward to the local newspaper and perhaps to the offended ministers of the gospel. Perhaps printing this information will control the problem. We can only hope that common sense will prevail. This is quite a long statement actually. So here are some uh, selected highlights. Sure. Dear Mr. Martin, I have received your recent letter detailing some of the bizarre reactions to the Georgia Guidestones. If I were not concerned by them, I would only be amused. The sponsors of the project do not believe in demonology – Or astrology, or Satanism. We regard such activities as being a form of superstition. There may be evil spirits of a personal sort in the universe. We are not convinced. We would rather regard evil as the absence of good. Only through the most strained constructions can the precepts, referring to the uh, commandments of this monument, be construed as being anti religious or anti Christian. It's actually so good, I'm going to keep reading. The monument attempts to appeal to the good in human beings of all faiths. For this reason and this reason alone, it does not carry the badges of any of the world's major religions or philosophies. And for this reason, it speaks in Russian and Arabic and Swahili and other major tongues of the human family. It is devoid of political overtones. It appeals to human reason as a God-given tool to be used by humanity in dealing with the problems which now confront us so urgently. We hope that the good people of Elbert County will interpret our message literally, just as we have presented it, and that they will not twist and turn our words to find hidden meanings which are not a part of our concept. Numerologists can find secret meanings in the random patterns of a telephone book. The dimensions of the stones were determined by the limits of our financial resources and the physical requirements of the texts. Meters were used because the metric system is being adopted universally. Larger stones were too costly. It is probably unavoidable that followers of unusual sects will attempt to find in the astronomical bearings some occult message. None have been placed therein. As we have indicated... The present stone cluster indicates the northern and southern extremes of the motions of the sunrise and sunset throughout the year. They have been calculated by scientifically trained astronomers using modern computer technology. The significance of these orientations is to recognize the constancy of the laws of nature which govern the motions of the heavenly bodies. If additional stones are added at a later date by other donors whose gifts would be most welcome, they should indicate the migrations of the moon – If the donors wish, they may cause these stones to indicate some other interesting but constant feature in the nighttime sky. Our initial group of stones are intended to carry only the simple message we have inscribed upon them. Any other mysterious significance which may be thought to attach to these stones will be purely the product of the imagination of the viewer. We specifically disavow any connection with the so-called cults and superstitions which are now being professed by people who claim a relationship to ancient religions or to witchcraft or other irrational human beliefs. We discourage the use of the monument site for cultist purposes of any kind. We ask the people of Elbert County to protect the site from abuse so that our brief appeal to reason may be carried to our fellow human beings of all philosophies in a united effort to deal with the problems of the world through the application of human reason.
0: Yours truly, R.C. Wow. So this official statement more or less categorically disavows any sort of uh, uh, occult or ritualistic... Um, involvement, at least uh, on the part of R.C. And again, the words that we are hearing that pop up here consistently are things like reason, common sense. This is clearly based on at least a group that perceives themselves as proceeding in secularism and rationalism. Mm-hmm.
2: Also as being relatively neutral – in terms of any kind of there they mentioned he mentions in the letter that there is no political message. I disagree with that. I
0: completely disagree with that.
2: Gotta say, yeah,
1: especially in context of nineteen eighty, uh when it was Cold etched. War. Yeah. I don't know.
0: I love that you point that out, Matt, because we cannot divorce this from the context of time in which it occurred. Nineteen eighty. Uh, we are, as a species, at that point, uh, possibly closer to nuclear war than we had been at, at any time, definitely before or, or since World War II. Yeah. And uh, now an, another another factor we forget is that these two gigantic superpowers are fighting proxy wars throughout the country. And this is the these are the days before widespread internet, so the average person was going to have to work very hard to have more of an international understanding, right? Yeah, investigative journalism was better in 1980. That's just a fact. But the problem is that fewer people had access to diverse sources of information. And the reason I think that all of us are having a hard time separating this from a political context is they're talking about the rule of law on a global scale. Which is itself a political opinion, wouldn't you think? Absolutely.
2: Like, I mean, and as you say, it's almost like there is a a very palpable desire, need, if you will, to combat the potential for hysteria and mm-hmm. and and losing that rationality and that sense of reason, and just completely falling victim to, you know, the hysteria of the time, which was. Cold War, paranoia, the idea that we, you know, may not be long for this world, you know, and and finding a way to kind of come together as humans. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget that this also – there's a lot here that might lead one to believe this is maybe for after the bombs fall. That's that's
1: exactly my thought. Mm -hmm. It's – if bombs do fall on U.S. soil and this one remote part of Georgia remains somewhat unaffected – and as people continue to like rebuild after Ooh. some disaster like that, you happen upon it and you can read it because it's in all the languages and you make a new society.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's an excellent point. And it's got to be in the reckoning there because the things that tend to last the longest out of human made, anything made by humanity will, will tend to be very um When I say primitive, I just mean they don't have a lot of moving parts, but like very unsophisticated things, mounds in the ground, burial mounds, stonework, works of stone. And this reminds me of uh, something that we may have talked about on the show before, which was when NASA started asking people how we would um, – NASA started asking people how we would protect future generations or even extraterrestrial species – from radiation sites.
1: Nuclear fallout or uh, n-
0: nuclear waste? Isn- right. Isn't that the idea? Right. Because the half-life math there is tremendous, and it's completely possible that the U.S. could fall, the bombs could drop, civilization could like go down into just a tiny... Uh, tiny stuttering match flame and then later rekindle and people are finding out these new continents and stuff and then they boom they stumble onto a toxic waste thing and like the last uh, fertile humans die Jeez, that was the fear and they came up with all these weird um, very creative things like hey let's get cats or plants that grow in the presence of radiation Or let's have big stonework warnings. But I I think you guys are absolutely right. I think it is intended for post disaster because it's built pretty far inland. So even if climate change projections of the time were, you know, as catastrophic as they might have been, then it still wouldn't be underwater.
2: Well, and again, it's the the, the highest point in Elbert Mm. County. It is a high place and it's flat. So um, Mr. Christian did tell Wyatt Martin that he chose Elberton because of A, the quality and availability of the granite and the personnel that it would take to – construct such a monument Mm -hmm. and more importantly, even the conditions, the climate, you know, the location and these things you're talking about with it being inland, the way it was and Mm -hmm. the elevation, making it um, a place that could serve as a a rallying point. You know, if the bleep hit the fan,
0: if the bleep hit the fan. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting. I wonder how many survivalists or preppers have that plan. It's like, all right. If it goes down, meet me at the Stones. Whoa. I like that. In
2: 72
0: hours.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's, yeah, it might not be very helpful in gathering food and stuff. Hey, you'd have some horses right there, though, at least.
2: I think it's a nice idea. But there's a lot of ideas that maybe are not so nice. And I think maybe where we go now in this show is we get a little granular with it, pull this thing apart, talk about each one. But first, let's take a quick break. <laughs> so
0: as we said earlier there are ten commandments or as our friend rc likes to call them precepts carved into these stones and we're looking let's look at each of them uh during the time of their construction in the 1980s and compare those changes uh or the global progress made or lost uh from then to now at the end of 2016 so what's first
1: the first one is maintain humanity under five hundred million in perpetual balance with nature.
2: A lot Ooh. to unpack here. Yeah, that yeah. I
1: mean, it just okay. Well, well, why is this? Why does this feel strange when you hear that? Well, it obviously hasn't happened yet. And in 1980, when this monument was built, there were an estimated four billion four hundred and fifty-three million eight hundred and thirty-one thousand seven hundred and fourteen rough estimated, people on planet Earth at that time. Now, uh, you know, we don't have to exactly do the math here to let you know that 500 million is significantly fewer
2: than the number of people that existed at the time. Which brings us back to our eugenics discussions.
0: Right, right. So the big question that the Guidestones imply or the, the question that conjures up immediately is, what happens to these more than four billion people who were around in 1980? So this gives us another um, this gives us another leg to our argument that this was meant to be read by survivors of something. Yeah. What right? what
2: happened to all those people? That's true. Um, there is another possibility, though, that Mr. Christian did in fact support the idea of calling, you know, the undesirable element, shall we say, from the population, that there needed to be some sort of separating the wheat from the chaff, shall we say, for this new society. you choosing uh, language very carefully. Well, I, I am, like but I actually have here uh, in my hands a book um, called Common Sense Renewed, The Georgia Guidestones by Robert Christian. And this was uh, distributed It was given out for free at the Elbert Library for Mm -hmm. years. They have them on file there, and I believe they had copies that you could actually get. He left them with Mr. Martin and asked that he make them available to people. I have a copy here. I don't think there are tons left. But the the very first – the preface starts like this. At harvest time, primitive farmers separate their grain by beating the stalks with flails on a threshing floor. They remove the loose straw – leaving a residue of grain, chaff, and dust. This mixture is purified by winnowing, tossing it into the air to permit the empty husks and useless debris to be carried away on the wind. The grain kernels fall back where they can be recovered and put to use by the community.
0: So what's fascinating there is uh, that's clearly, that clearly implies something for our second precept that's coming up here too um but there are numerous things that show up in in fiction and in international affairs and real politics where people are saying you know this i the the egg omelet argument right
1: yeah you got to break a ton of eggs mm
0: -hmm, to mm -hmm. make
1: that delicious colorado omelet to build
0: a better omelet (laughs) yeah right and uh obviously no matter how you look at it right now as of 2016 this hasn't worked As of 2016, there are over 7.4 billion people alive and there's an estimated 80 million more uh, on the way in 2017 unless the winnowing begins. Uh, The second one, the one that I think fascinates uh, the three of us immensely is guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. And this is also exactly what – um, Robert Christian is talking about here, uh, it's obviously an argument for eugenics, which itself has been the rationale for numerous horrific crimes, genocides, forced sterilizations, uh, other other strange hu- medical experiments. Mm-hmm. And during various points of history, it's been lauded as a way to improve humanity, though hopefully we can all understand how improved. Proving something might mean very different things to different yeah. people. According right? to who? Right, right. And it's true that while there are more people being born, the pattern of births birth rates is changing geographically. Mm-hmm. The majority of first world developed nations are experiencing a decline in birth rates, Japan being one of the most um one of the most extreme examples. And if we look to the future, if we walk a little past twenty sixteen, what we're seeing is The idea that eugenics may be easier and more customizable than ever before. Uh, We may become a species wherein, thanks to gene editing technology, we don't have people practicing genocide so much as we have people editing genes of uh, fetuses, unborn children. Getting that CRISPR out? Getting the CRISPR out, yep. Yep. Uh, CRISPR, the famous gene editing software, which was recently used on uh, human material for the first time. And God, it sounds messed up to call it human material. Yep.
2: (laughs) Speaking of that stuff, here's another quote from a chapter in the book uh, Common Sense Renewed by Robert Christian, chapter called Cultural Evolution. Um, The science of genetics has provided us with rudimentary understanding of the manner in which a human body and brain develop from a single living cell, the fertilized ovum. That tiny miracle – Combines contributions from two parents in approximately equal proportions. Its central nucleus contains a genetic blueprint which spells out the general characteristics of our species together with the minor variations which determine our racial and individual features. Our greatest acquired feature is invisible and intangible. It is our total cultural heritage, the composite of knowledge which is maintained and transferred in our libraries and in the information stores of our arts and sciences, our trades, traditions, and all the complex living patterns of human society. The capacity for assimilating that heritage and enriching it is mysteriously contained in the trillion or more cells which constitute the living brain in each of us. Collectively, these features determine our national and individual awareness and our character
0: uh, all right, so the argument there that culture is the most important thing uh, the learning actually the learning of the dead and our predecessors would be the most important thing carried by our um, carried by our human brains right or whatever we build to function as a proxy for a human brain uh it, there is a dangerous part here with eugenics, of course, which is the idea of breeding programs. That sounds fun. Well, we know that uh, the Nazi Party tried it to create their perfect air, Aryan. Their oh yeah, there. Um, yeah, And many, you know, insipid so-called royals or aristocrats have made essentially made incest a, a family tradition, and that happened to their massive disadvantage. I mean, look at look at the deformities of King Tut. Look at the jaws of the Habsburgs. Look at the web of grossly intertwined families that are still somehow treated as the tribal mascots of Europe. Yeah, Um,
1: it's not just a Lannister thing.
0: And did you know that China, the nation of China, uh, allegedly used a breeding program to create the famous basketball player uh, Yao Ming? No way. Yeah, and you can read reports of this because China asked uh, two very tall basketball players, his father being six foot seven and his mom being six, three uh, to essentially breed together and see uh, if they, if their children would be taller and then boom. Well, it works for now. There is no publicly acknowledged widespread eugenics program or breeding program. Although generational family-based discrimination uh, is almost certainly functioning in a eugenistic way by, uh, for instance, North Korea's, North Korea's collective punishment system, which says if, if someone violates a law, then uh, their family, three generations up, three generations down, are Everybody all being carted punished. off. Yeah. Which means that entire family you know, lines are, are being lost. <sighs> Here's another one. Unite humanity with a new living language.
2: I feel like this also is a big part of of what you mentioned earlier, Ben about how there it just wasn't as easy to get information, especially in an increasingly global society, global world um where there are fears of outside invaders coming and challenging our way of life. Mm-hmm. The idea here being that if we could communicate with our enemies. In the same language, using the same tongue, that maybe we could find more common ground, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think overall, a lot of the messages of the Guidestones are one of peace and environmentalism and sort of taking care of what you have and nurturing relationships. So I think that's that's how it speaks to me. What do mm-hmm. you guys think?
1: I don't know if this is correct, but I believe that English would be the closest thing that we could call a universal language that exists on the planet
0: today in 2016. Uh, yeah, it's the okay. So there's a difference between what would be a constructed language and then a language like English, right, or a language like Mandarin. So many people have made attempts to create a global language before the Georgia Guidestones were a thing, and one of the most famous is Esperanto. Yes, there's uh, there's a Esperanto film starring William Shatner. I think we talked a little bit about Esperanto on a uh, on another trip, uh, but. It never, it never caught on. And Matt, you're absolutely right. Currently, English, let's consider it the de facto language of business. So there are more people in raw numbers being native speakers of you know, Mandarin, for instance, right, mm. or a Chinese language. However, there are more and more people who are speaking English in their common. Like, let's say you spoke German and you spoke Spanish and you spoke English and Noel spoke Russian and Noel spoke uh, Swahili and also English, then of course you would naturally converse in English. But it's still not the um, not the world's language yet. And like you said, Noel, the rise of um, this incredibly cheap communication now, the fact that we can have essentially the same kind of conversation if you lived in Thailand and I lived in um, – What's far away from Thailand that's not here? Australia.
2: Australia. What I meant originally was at the time, we didn't have that kind of instantaneous communication the way we do now in 1979. Mm -hmm. It was much more difficult to get instantaneous news and information. Like you said, there was better quality of news, but it certainly wasn't as readily available to all people Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't be as easy to find out what was going on in Russia you know, or have a one on one conversation I with somebody who is perceived as being like an enemy. I think the idea here to have to unify people with a living new language mm-hmm. is the idea of bringing people together by getting rid of those language barriers. So, in a way, mm-hmm. technology and the internet has sort of achieved this precept from where we stand.
0: Today. Yeah, well, I, de- I think it's definitely eroded it, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's eliminated. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Uh, but but it also goes to another bigger question: How do we define a language? This is this is something that's important because clearly, clearly, the authors of the guides and precepts mean to define a language as something like we're speaking English now, right? Or however we're translated on your television. But is math a language? Because if so, then the majority of the world speaks it to one degree or another. And, you know, we've always talked about extraterrestrials or how you would communicate with an entirely alien species of some sort. It would probably be something like math. Um, But there are a lot of things you can't express in math. You know what I mean? Like you can't uh, – there's a certain poetry to it, but it's not the same as the languages we're speaking. And then is music a language? Right. Would you would there be ever be an encounter with someone where you would be able to communicate entirely through music Yeah,
2: or even like body language where that yeah, can right. differ significantly uh, across cultures, as can music. But there are things about music that seem to cross cultural barriers like in terms of a feeling of mm-hmm. reverence or or like you know having the you know the hairs stand up on the back of your neck when a particular passage of some beethoven is played mm-hmm. you know beautifully um can you communicate thoughts and concepts i mean you can paint a picture but it's very Blunt kind of like you can't really get into specifics, you know, where you have like us the score to Peter and the Wolf, for example, where you have, you know, the duck is a particular mm-hmm. instrument and you can kind of picture a duck waddling around or something like that. But then you can't get much more specific than that. Yeah. If you used music like like in uh, Close Encounters, for example, mm-hmm. where you used music to represent intervals, which are then translated to math to a, a type of code, a Morse code, or what have you, you know, you could communicate things that way.
0: Yeah. And we know that maybe a uh, computer code could be used in a similar way. If we go back to the example of one person speaking German, one speaking Russian, uh, and they d- both uh, are using the same sort of code, computer code, then it's possible that the, what they would be doing is like communication. But I love that you point out, that music has more of an emotive, emotional content because you could we can hear Peter and the Wolf, which is a great example, or we can hear it in the Hall of the Mountain King and get the fact that things are going crazy there, but we can't listen to an instrumental if we don't know how to tie our shoes and expect it to, to teach us how to do that. Right? We need words for certain things. Well, and, unless you're using emojis and that's the new language.
1: Oh because gosh, it would essentially yeah. be like hieroglyphics, but Digital and universal,
0: yeah, ideograms, pictograms mm-hmm. that's fascinating. well what what about this next one? What about ruling passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason? There's the r word again,
2: I just think that comes back to not getting carried away with you know the paranoias and the burdens of our time. Mm-hmm. you know we could We could probably use that advice. Where we are right now with what's going on politically and a lot of people are very paranoid and concerned the idea of sort of ruling your emotional life with some measured form of of reason and kind of Mm. tamping down your baser instincts to just fly off the handle and, you know, go to war, be it with your neighbor You know, or on a global scale. I just think that it's sort of just encouraging people to like think things through and not fly off the handle, you know?
0: You know, I took it as an argument against uh religious extremism, as well as ideological. Uh and I was looking at this in nineteen eighty to twenty sixteen, there's a clear trend towards secularism in the US and in Western Europe, but in other parts of the world There's a clear trend toward uh, what is often called extremist ideology, right? Uh, And when I say that, I don't mean just one particular faith. I'm talking about different areas of the world. So the amount of people in the US who say they're absolutely certain God exists has dropped from 71% in 2007 to 63% in 2014. Uh, And the amount of people who identified as non religious, agnostic, or atheistic uh, has increased. Um, and in the U.S., the population of people who believe in, in some sort of God is uh, far higher than most other developed countries, but it's still slowly declining um, from 92 percent to 89 percent um, over, over about the same time span uh, since the Pew Research Center conducted their first religious landscape study. Um, And now the religious, religiously unaffiliated, Mm -hmm. which is slightly different, the people who say, well, I'm none, I'm not an atheist, I'm not, you know, uh, a Catholic or a, um, a, a a shaker. The uh, religiously unaffiliated, the people who don't consider themselves, you know, Catholic or, or Muslim or a Jehovah Witness or an atheist at all has increased uh, people who like that was 16 percent of the population called the nuns who just put none N-O-N-E, mm-hmm. uh, has increased to 23 uh, percent in the current age, uh, which is strange but I, I like the way you're looking at it more than – you know, I think it's better for it to be an argument of let's be reasonable rather than an argument against religion, which is what – it could be against religious extremism, but I don't think it's against spirituality in general.
1: Well, and it's also the, – the language here is very specific. It says rule, passion faith tradition and all He's things own that. Well, yeah, the, so the, the people that are either in charge of it or, you know, in some way the, I guess the religious leaders like this, it's a direct message to that person. Um, that's interesting to me because it feels like, I don't want to, I don't want to say patriarchal control cause it's not spe- you know, specifying any kind of gender or anything like that, but it just feels like that, uh, the Your leader will control these things with reason
0: or make it it seems like there's a hierarchy of, definitely a hierarchy of um, how to prioritize stuff right
2: and I think that many of the uh the precepts on here are specifically directed at government, mm-hmm. and then I think some of them can be um, made more personal. As well, you know, I think that's what's something that's interesting about the language of these precepts is that a lot of them are clearly advice for setting up a government or for changing a government for the better. But a lot of them can kind of are twofold where you can sort of apply them to your own philosophy and your own way of thinking just Mm -hmm. as a human person.
0: Yeah, there's a code of Hammurabi kind of thing going on here, which is exactly as you said, to establish a civilization or to establish an ideal civilization. Well, what's next? Where are, where are we at with the next precept?
1: The next commandment states that we should protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Sounds pretty straightforward. Sounds like a good idea to me. Pretty um, open-ended, though. It is. Uh, yeah. Is it? Is it fair? I don't know. Are, what do you look at? The words fair and
0: just, I guess? And like— it, Definition of those
1: isn't
2: that yeah. Fox News's tagline <laughs> right, fair right. and just
0: now more than ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting because it makes me wonder too if this is similar to Asimov's fictional laws of robotics, which are also hierarchical in that the first one establishes everything and the later ones build off that. So maybe well, oh,
2: that's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. so
0: maybe these are put in this order to build like off you, you off. can't
2: do you can't do this one yeah. unless you've achieved ruling your passions, faith and tradition and all things with that tempered reason. Exactly if you don't have that down, then your courts and your laws are going to be all kinds of messed up.
0: Right yeah let's consider for example, many practitioners of various religions that have an, a legal system encoded in that religion will consider that religions um, that religion's legal system the only true, fair and just, Rule of law, even if it's a religion that says destroy non-believers, uh, that'll they'll just seem like fair and just. But it doesn't seem so if you're not ruling, you know, tempered things with reason. And obviously, I think the Guidestones architects would take exception to that. Now, the United Nations existed. In the 80s, right, when, mm-hmm. when the Guidestones were being built. But the International Criminal Court did not exist until the Rome Statute in the late 90s, 98, and only became active in the early 2000s. So we could say that if this um, – we could say that if we're protecting people and nations, that the International Criminal Court is a step forward in that direction. So that's progress. Mm-hmm. However – People still argue back and forth over whether the International Criminal Court A works or yeah. is B effective and the US is not a signatory. Nope. And probably never will be.
2: Do you feel like some of this is a comment on the state of the United Nations and like how to make it better, sort of a critique of it not being all that it's cracked up to be? Or I feel do you like think it's too, in definitely. support of it?
0: Um, I feel like it's definitely – I I think they they see parts of the United Nations as uh, a model. I think it's a mix. But I don't think they believe in the United Nations specifically. They believe in some sort of peaceful global enterprise. Um, The word enterprise, for instance, makes – you know what? They believe in – it sounds like a Star Trek world. You know how uh, in the world of Star Trek, Earth is utopian.
2: That's why I'm so on the fence about all this eugenic stuff. I mean, I read some passages from the book and mm-hmm. there is some language in here that is a little bit troubling. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's just not in line with so many of the other precepts. So many of them seem to be focusing on peace and harmony and mm-hmm. you know, being one with nature as we'll get to. Yeah. You know, so I just I I don't know that I believe that Mr. Christian was mm-hmm. in fact Into the idea of of killing off a huge percentage of the population. I think it was more of a after the bombs fall scenario. How do we deal with those that that survive? How do we create a society that will encourage reason over, you know, hysteria and paranoia and, you know, killing your brother to get something better for yourself? That kind of thing. And
0: if you you want to go dystopian with it. Then maybe the eugenics at that point, post-apocalyptic eugenics, would be a matter of survival, right? Maybe there are certain um, mutations or deficiencies that occur, like exposure to uh, long, long long-term exposure intergenerational to radiation, may mean that only certain people can or should um, breed.
1: Or viruses like Zika. Mm -hmm. You know, if if it somehow travels
0: through a line. Then, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's a really good point. And then also we have to think maybe they were writing by committee. You know yeah. what I mean? Maybe just like the founding fathers had different aims, maybe there was just one guy there who was super into eugenics. And they said, okay, well, you have to help us build these stones.
1: We'll put a little in there. Uh, just before we get too far away from the International Criminal Court, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys saw the news today that Russia withdrew from the International Criminal Court. And earlier this year in 2016, um, several... African states withdrew from the International Mm -hmm. Criminal Court. It's weird to see the International Criminal Court losing sway with with parts of the world right now.
0: Yeah, and that brings us to the uh, next precept, which is uh, let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. So on paper, we talked about the ICC and other international systems that help resolve uh, international issues However, one thing that's not mentioned in the Guidestones precepts at all is the rise of corporate entities yeah. and the fact that in numerous situations now, especially with uh, burgeoning legislation like the TPP, mm-hmm. uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, what we're seeing is that some external corporations are able to affect the internal functions of state actors of countries, you know? Yeah, we don't
1: need to go to court, man, with the country. We'll just have a tribunal uh, separately on our own. It'll be fine. You don't have to worry about it.
0: And there's no question that numerous countries since before the 1980s and then after the 1980s have been interfering with the internal functions of other other states. The U.S. is an extreme example. The U.S. has interfered legally and illegally and in gray areas – in multiple countries throughout the world. And not to say the U.S. is the only, pers- the only entity doing this. Russia has done the same uh, with Crimea, right, in the Ukraine. Uh, China has famously done the same uh, with the expansion in what is called the South China
1: mm-hmm. Sea. Basically, the superpowers do it.
0: Yeah. The superpowers do it. Do we live in a world where might is right? The architects of the Guidestones are arguing that we should not. But so far, we haven't made as much progress on that one. And then here's the one that – remember earlier we said uh, we said that we don't agree with the idea that these are not of a political nature? Absolutely not. You know, what, do, what do you think with – what do you think of this <laughs> next one?
2: It's, it's probably the most middle finger uh, <laughs> precept of the bunch, I would say. Avoid petty laws. And useless officials. Wow. I
0: I read that and I thought, what happened? (laughs) It's like a mic drop right there. Yeah. yeah.
2: It
1: feels like it's personal, right? Like somebody in the committee or whoever came up with these didn't like somebody who was either in charge of his group that he was with. And he wrote this one. I think he wrote it on purpose for one person.
0: Well, if we consider Congress a group of officials – then the american public certainly ranks them as largely useless i mean they, their approval numbers are in the tank
2: yeah i mean and not to mention petty i mean it's it's <laughs> it's all of this you know back and forth i'm going to block anything that you could possibly want to do right you know yeah. if it kills me i yeah. mean it's not even about progress it's about
0: winning yeah it's about progress of the party not of the country right yeah, you know what? I didn't think about that. You're absolutely right. That is petty. And and what makes a law petty? What makes an official useless? Uh Noel, I think you had the best answer for that. Um, but a lot of our listeners are going to have very different answers depending on political opinions. What's the point? It's another very open ended one here. So this open-ended. is all
2: about like how you look at it and who you think is useless. You know, yeah. I mean and it all depends on whether they're doing something for For you or not a lot of
0: times. And like Matt pointed out at the very beginning, uh, since they are anonymous, we don't have a way to contact them and say, hey, what's up with that one? Uh, Who did you write this about? Was mm -hmm. it a specific congressperson? And the other one, balancing personal rights with social duties, the next precept, seems like it's an argument for good citizenship. Um, You know, voting, paying taxes and so on. If that's the case, well, we haven't made that much progress either. Voting rates remain laughably low. Uh, The U.S. elected a president who bragged about never paying taxes. Uh, And, you know, whether you support that uh, that president elect or not, um, it also seems largely legal, but it's also completely true. Uh so what is what is the conflict between a personal right and a social duty? That feels a little open-ended to me because your social duties vary depending upon the community or the uh, or the civilization in which you live.
2: To me though this is almost like a socialist kind of thing, sounding like or even you could go yeah. as far as saying communist. It's yeah. saying, you know, for the greater good I will give up my personal rights for the greater good of the community. Oh, you I know, see. It yeah. is my social duty to limit my personal freedoms for the greater good. That's just how it sounds to me. I don't know about you guys. See, to
1: so, me, so. that sounds very Star Trek. Hmm. And I know that may sound counterintuitive to a lot of people. Listening. Very like
0: needs of the many.
1: Well, yeah, but if you think about the way the Enterprise functioned. Oh, wow, I sound like such a dork. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Please do. Uh, <laughs> you think about what all of the uh, inhabitants of the Enterprise got to do. I mean, there was a holodeck where you could, I guess, give off, uh, let off some steam or something like that. But in the in the uh, interactions amongst all of the crew members, mm-hmm. you had to be very straightforward, very. I mean, uh, even Keel, like nobody is going off the handle, f- having a fight or getting super super drunk. It just doesn't happen. Uh, because
2: yeah, there, it goes there are these to greater ruling, duties, your, pa- your passion, faith, your tradition—all things with that tempered reason. Yeah. You know, not flying off the handle, keeping it cool and calm and collected. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is another one that speaks both to a system of government that could impose this kind of thinking on yeah. you, yeah. and also just to this is just how you should be—a good guy, good good gal, good good human citizen. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I By, think that's a good point. I think there, it can be seen both ways, as as many of these can. We're getting down to it now, guys. I know we've been at this for a minute. This is probably our longest ever episode, but let's soldier forth.
0: Yeah, we just have a few more. This is the this is the most open ended prize: truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite.
2: Who has the closest that is the closest thing to God? In this entire yep. affair, yep. Mm. because it's 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 made m- a lot of effort to be very secular, as we mm-hmm. talked about. It really does. Even in that letter I read from Mister Christian, he talks about how they purposely left out any specific mention of a religion of a yeah. god, and and none is there. What is do you what call it?
0: Said. Badging. No religion. No badges, badges. No badges. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And you know, um, I, I know atheists that still. Think about the idea of the universe or the idea mm. of the something, some force that moves through things that is sort of what one might consider calling God. And, in, and this is the reference there, I think, when seeking harmony with the infinite.
0: Yeah, it seems like it's an argument of some sort of secular meditative approach to uh, being self-aware of your place in the universe, right? How could you be mad about that? Uh, it would be my, my response, but it brings us to, speaking of Harmony and the Infinite, the very last one and one of the most important and I would say crucial for our time.
1: Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature.
2: Leave room for nature. Yeah, twice. So it so says nice it, twice it twice
1: in a row there. It's the last one.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: gotta say, this. this one hits home for me a little bit. I think maybe I listened to too much Joe Rogan, Mm -hmm. uh, at least back in the day, like 2012 Joe Rogan, Mm -hmm. where he discusses flying in a plane over cities uh, as opposed to flying over natural areas, uh, wooded areas, mountain ranges, stuff like that. And I'm paraphrasing Rogan here, but he's just saying which one of those looks like a tumor when you're that high up and you're looking down on the earth itself, if you imagine it as a living being, the tumor is the city with all this jagged, nasty metal shooting up out of it, and then you've got streams and water running over here with these with plants and animals mm-hmm. running around and all that. I don't know I feel that I feel that uh, I feel like we may be really bad for this planet as a species, hmm.
0: Well, you know, the earth is uh, the earth is definitely in the age of man, the Anthropocene. Uh, The earth was covered by approximately 14.8 billion acres of forest about 8000 years ago as a repercussion of human exploitation. Only about 8.6 billion remain and the highest rates of deforestation occurred during the last 50 years. From 1980 to 1990, Brazil alone lost over 91 million acres of rainforest. Um, during the time of the Guidestones construction, Earth was already undergoing what is called a global mass extinction. And it continues today at a breakneck pace. And this is not a, um, what is it? This is not like a, a Sierra Club uh, Peace Corps Greenpeace lecture. This is just. These are facts. But
2: that kind of thinking was very popular in 1979 and 1980, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea of conservation. I remember, you know, recycle, reduce, reuse. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean this was in the early 90s even for me. But I think a lot of that stuff began around that time and it was kind of sort of entering the public consciousness a little more than it had. People were accepting that maybe all this industrialization isn't the best thing in the whole world. Right.
0: especially with how unevenly it has occurred in parts of the world. And then furthermore, sometimes people reject an environmentalist argument out of hand, which is clearly this is an environmentalist argument, the last part, leave room for nature. However, there's another bent that a lot of people don't consider, which is the biotechnological part. Human beings, the more we are learning as scientists and as inventors, the more we are learning about the natural world, the more we are learning that our best technology just imitates a concept that already exists there. So when things go extinct or when systems become corrupt or defunct or they don't function, what we are losing is the best functioning technology on the planet and it is not within our capability to replace it after a certain point. So, if someone is bothered by if someone's like, oh, the rainforest is abstract, that doesn't matter, that doesn't affect the price of breakfast cereal or whatever um, don't think of it that way. Think of it as um, a computer that a computer that you can't uh, fix a machine that you can't create enough replacement parts for, think of that breaking and think of it more like um, the way you would think of being on a boat in the open water and the engine is slowly breaking down and the hull is disintegrating and you start to realize that you can swim for a little bit, but not forever.
2: I mean, at our best, at the height of you know, the human race's intellect and ability to innovate, have we even really come close to matching a system like the rainforest or you know like the way weather works have we figured out how to harness that (laughs) no not even close (laughs) you know and i think that's that's a that's pretty forward thinking um of the creators of this monument to put that in uh and it's truer now i think than
0: than ever and now we can we can say that at the time of the recording uh the guidestones still exist there, except for the drive there. Once you get there, it's very easy to access. Uh, there's no. There's no one who will stop you from. They are other. monitored.
2: There are cameras there are up, cameras. And, and those were only put up after so many attempts to tear mm-hmm. the things down and vandalize them. And I th- they are periodically still, you know, hit with mm-hmm. with uh, spray paint and things like that. But they are very quickly
0: um, repaired. Someone's actively funding funding them and
2: monitoring them, but Mm -hmm. you know, you're you're not being watched per se, you know, I mean, it's, you can go there and just enjoy them. It's a very peaceful place just out on this field, just a very small, narrow state road. You just hear the occasional sound of a car whistling Mm -hmm. past. And, uh, it's an interesting place to, to go and just kind of collect your thoughts and, um, been a lot of fun talking about it with you guys, that's for sure.
1: Well, it's also actively visited still. When we were there, several families came with children
2: mm-hmm. to explore it and look at it and go through it. But not a ton, right? Not I mean, a ton. I mean, we were there but... for a while and there were maybe, you know, two or three other people that came. No, there were, I think I counted eight the second day that maybe we were there. groups is what I mean, I guess. Two oh, I got you. Okay, yeah. That came together. Yeah, that's correct. You know, so it's not like you go and it's just teeming with people. You don't have to buy a ticket. You don't have it's to buy a ticket. You have to wait in line. Yeah, no,
0: but you can check out our uh, other podcasts. You can check out our video component of this coming out soon. Uh, you can find every podcast that we've ever done on our website StuffTheyDon'tWantYouToKnow.com. You can find some of our Facebook and Twitter adventures. That might even relate to this. I think uh, in our uh, in our pages on those sites where we are conspiracy stuff, uh, we're also on the Instagrams. Well, we're on one Instagram. It's conspiracy stuff show. Yes, and uh, we know this episode is, as Noel pointed out, probably the longest single episode we've ever done. Uh, but we hope that you enjoyed this look at the uh, look at. The Guidestones in depth and uh, on behalf of – not to speak too much for us, Matt, but on on behalf of the other two parts of the show, uh, I want to thank you for giving us and giving the audience uh, such a – such an unheard of look behind the screen of the official story regarding the Georgia Guidestones.
2: Yeah, and and one point that I didn't even mention is um – and if you guys are interested and anybody wants to see the the little documentary I made I'd be glad to shoot out a link um, it does exist um, but Mr. Martin gave me all of the documents that he had that he basically just wanted to unburden himself with this thing mm-hmm. so he gave me everything that he had that didn't point to Mr. Christian's true identity and everything else we destroyed you wait you destroyed. Well, he did, and I mm-hmm. filmed it. What? Yep. And that's actually in the film, if you want to see it. Spoiler alert, but mm-hmm. it's—I think it's important to know that he's the only one that knows he is not going to be around for too much longer. He has passed away, Robert Christian. He did. He did. Mm-hmm. He did say that much. He, mm. he was. He was called by his daughter. Oh, another thing too. I just want to mention the last thing. Uh, this was a family affair, Mister. Mr. Martin did tell me that much that this was this group he represented. Many of them were his family members.
0: Mm. Ooh. Fascinating. What? And I like that we're ending with a tinge of intrigue, a tinge of mystery. If you have something that you think your fellow listeners should know about the Georgia Guidestones, please write to uh, Noel and Matt and I and let us know.
2: We have not phased out the shout-out corner. We just had a couple of doozies of episodes, mm-hmm. this one being particularly one. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are collecting some really great letters from you folks and we are gonna be uh, sending them back
0: out your way in an episode coming up very soon. Yep Uh, as always uh, the best suggestions for topics come from you. So please let us know what you think your fellow listeners should know more about. You can write to us directly. We are Conspiracy
1: at HowStuffWorks.com